Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who, on, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. It is, it is rich and it is full and we are thankful for it. And we thank you for the time we have to, to gather um, together and to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you would uh, bless Mark as he um, brings the message this morning. I, I pray that you would um, work uh, through him, and that your spirit would would work as your word is proclaimed, that your that your spirit God would do work in the hearts of your people um, through your word. We um, we are thankful uh, for all the ways you have done this in the past, and we pray that you would do it again today. Um, we uh, we we love you, and we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Thank, thank you, Steve. Whoa. I was telling my wife that I've never um, uh, preached before using a music stand. And uh, you, you know what she said? She said, well, try not to break out in song. <laughs> I had the same reaction. Uh, one of, that's one of the reasons why I married her was for her sense of humor. But uh, listen, won't happen. It's not going to happen. Before we 
look at Psalm 33. Um, if, if I got the opportunity to, to, to say something from this platform, I've been wanting to say for some time that we are blessed to have Steve and Colin as our pastors. For a number of reasons, but one that is very near and dear to my heart is their commitment to expository preaching, in which you take a book of the Bible and you go verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph through it. Expository preaching is on the decline today. That, and I'm, I'm talking about evangelical churches across this country. That saddens me. I, I know that some differ, but in my opinion, expository preaching over the long haul best meets the spiritual needs of a congregation. I truly believe that. And so I'm thankful for their commitment to it. And as I said again, uh, as I say again, we are blessed to have them as our pastors. That was free of charge. (laughs) Can I pray again before we look into God's word? Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the psalms that have blessed and encouraged your people down through the years and even to today. I pray once again, Psalm 119, verse 18. Open our eyes. Open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And we... Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no escaping the fact that we are experiencing in America today, right now, what can only be called a crisis in confidence. Everywhere we look, every turn that we take, we see people whose hopes have been dashed, whose confidence is being undermined, whose trust is being betrayed. We hear about a loss of confidence in our government as a whole. I just read this morning that the approval rating of the president is at its lowest since he began. People don't trust their representatives and their legislatures. They're convinced that many of them are crooked. They have real doubts about their character and their competency. There is a loss of confidence in our educational system, what we hoped it would accomplish, not doing so. 
And there is a loss of confidence in our economy. How many times have you heard some financial expert say, and I'm so tired of hearing this, confidence in the dollar is at, is at an all-time low or high, as the case may be, in world markets today. To put it bluntly, people aren't confident about much of anything anymore. Now, Christians are not immune to this. They ought to be, as we're going to see in just a moment, but sadly they aren't. Christian men and women often put their confidence in presidents and in the economy and even in themselves. And the result is that their confidence is shaken. The message of Psalm 33 is simple. There's nothing especially technical or difficult about Psalm 33. He is telling us that our confidence must always be in God and in God alone. Nations, as we sang this morning, may rise or fall. Presidents may come or go. Inflation may increase or decrease. Your health may improve or deteriorate. But through it all, the confidence of the Christian, we are told in this psalm, ought to remain unshaken. How so, you say, on what grounds? Very simply in this way, it presents to us, for our adoring gaze, the supremacy of God. You know, I have found in my 40 years of pastoral ministry that there is one thing that the people of God are hungry for, and sometimes they don't even know it. They are starved for the supremacy and the greatness of God. For all of the the cures that we seek, all of the answers that we search for to our struggles, ultimately, when you talk to people and you ask them, What has meant the most to you in your time of crisis? They will tell you, if they're honest, it's that my God reigns. That He's supreme. That He's all-powerful. That He knows me through and through. And that He still loves me, nonetheless. And so it's the supremacy and the majesty and the greatness of God, as for example in Psalm 33, that provides the ground of confidence and hope. Let's notice it. 
There are two main stanzas in this psalm. Look, if you will, at verse 4 and the, 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 the first word in that verse. It's the little word for. We could translate it because. By the way, don't miss these little three-letter words in your reading and study of Scripture. This word at the beginning of verse 4, I think transitions us from the end of the first stanza to the beginning of the second. And so, what we have is, in the first stanza, we may call it the call to praise, verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 22, the cause for praise. Let's notice, first of all, the call to praise. Verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Two things I want to point out here in this call to praise. First, that phrase in verse 1, he says that praise befits or is fitting to the upright. Why is praise fitting? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. First of all, because God is worthy of it. And we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. But I think there's a second reason why praise is fitting to the upright. Not only because God is worthy of it, but because we were created for it. We were born and born again to praise. We were made to worship. One of the commentators said it this way, fish were made for swimming, birds for flying, and people for praising. Which is why we ought to feel most right when we are at worship. I can still remember when our children were little. They used to, uh, there, there was a, a children's magazine that was very popular. I think it's still popular today called Highlights. And it contains stories and, and puzzles and cartoons and things like that. And on the back, I used to get a kick out of the one called, What's Wrong With This Picture? And I always, I even enjoyed finding what's wrong with it. Sometimes it would be a, a, cloud, or a tree planted in the clouds or something bizarre like that. Well, when it comes to a church, what's wrong with this picture is people 
sitting silently, praising God. You see, it is fitting. It is proper. It is right for God's people to praise him in the way that is described here. But notice also in these first three verses that three times we are commanded to sing. I I prefer the New American Standard Bible's translation here. Verse 1, it says, Sing for joy or sing joyfully to the Lord. Verse verse 2, sing praises or sing melodiously to him with a harp of ten strings. Verse 3, sing to him a new song. Three times we are commanded to sing. And this is just three of the more than 150 times in the Psalms that we are flat out commanded to sing. Why singing? Have you ever thought about this? Why not just speaking? What happens with the accompaniment of musical instrumentation and singing words? There's a a powerful transformation. They come alive in our hearts and in our minds in a way that Mere speaking never could. Listen to the words of Martin Luther, that 16th century Protestant reformer. He said, we want the beautiful art of music to be properly used to serve her dear creator and his Christians. He is thereby praised and honored and we are made better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. You see, just talking doesn't do what singing can. Singing enables the soul to express deeply held emotions and affections. It channels our spiritual energy It gives focus and clarity to something deep inside. It intensifies our thinking. Singing sensitizes. It softens the heart to be more open to the truths of God's Word. I don't know about you, but I sing all the time. I make an exception this morning here, but, but when, when I'm happy, I sing. When my joy increases, it cries for an outlet. When I'm touched with a renewed sense of God's forgiveness and His grace and the hope I have in Christ, I just have to sing. Well, that's the call to praise. Notice the cause for it. The grounds for our confidence. The description of the supremacy and majesty of God. Five things are mentioned here 
that God is or God does. There's a, there's a little book called The Psalms in Outline by Roy Maddox. I'm borrowing two of his descriptions here, and I'm using three of my own. They all begin with the letter P to help us remember. First, God's perfections. Second, God's power. Third, His plans or purpose. Fourth, His prescience, a word that means foreknowledge. And fifth, His passion. Notice, first of all, God's perfections, verses 4 and 5. Why do we sing for joy in the Lord? Why do we give thanks to the Lord? Why do we sing praises to Him? For or because the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves justice, uh, righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Four statements here of God's perfections. I, I want to focus briefly on one that I think needs corrected in some people's thinking. Let me ask you a question. Why does God do what is right? Now, it's a misleading question. You see, when we ask that question, it's almost as if we're suggesting that right or truth is some self-sufficient, self-existent standard external to God, which God is obligated. That somehow there is this law of morality and good and evil in the universe to which God Himself must be submissive. And that God does what is right because everybody's required to do what is right. Dear friend, that is not true. God doesn't simply do what is right. What God does is right for the simple fact that it is God who does it. Why is something else right and something else wrong? Because that's the expression of God's character. That's not an external standard of righteousness and truth that God has to kind of bow the knee to and be sure to conform to. What God does is right for the simple fact that it is God who does it. That's what makes it right. Just like saying that water freezes at 32 degrees. Why? Well, that's because that's the way things are in nature. But why is it that way? Because God made it that way as an expression of His will for the physical universe. It's also an expression of His will for the moral universe. We're told here that God is in His very essence righteousness and justice. Not because He's been real faithful 
in doing that which everybody has to obey. God is himself that standard of righteousness. And not only does he do, does he do it, but we're told here he loves righteousness. He doesn't just do it. He delights to do it. There's more to God than that, though. There's secondly, His power. Look at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of, waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be, and He commanded, and it stood firm. You know, I have learned over the years of my life how ineffective my spoken word is. I remember many years ago, telling my younger son, you left your clothes in the middle of the floor, please please pick them up and put them away. And uh, I, I would go back an hour later, and there they are. I wished that I could say to those clothes, get up, fold yourselves, be put away. Or something more um, current in my life, like, Trash, be gone. You know, just a command and it be done. I don't know about you, but I don't have much success with that. Just a simple thing like taking out the trash. Now, my wife is more successful. She says, Mark, take out the trash and it's done just like that. (laughs) It's godlike in some respects. Do you know what the psalmist is saying here? He's saying that in the midst of nothing, in the midst of this infinite vacuum in which God existed, He spoke and the world came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. One of the sermons I read on Psalm 33 Um, I came across a statement by Shadrach Lockridge that I really liked. Um, I I didn't know who Shadrach Lockridge was, so I decided to look him up on the Internet. Turns out, interestingly, his full name is Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. I don't know what happened to Abednego, but... (laughs) Um, but he, black pastor, um, served for 40 years at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. I think in 2010 he went home to be with the Lord. But listen to his statement on creation. This is really good. He said, God came from nowhere 
Because there was nowhere for him to come from. And coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing because there was no place for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach, caught something when there was nothing to catch, and hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. I like that. That's creation. Recently, uh, in our Sunday school class, we uh, looked at the six days of creation in Genesis. And there's that repeated phrase each day. And God said, let there be light. And light was. And God said, let there be land. And land was. And, And so on. That's all He had to say. Be and is. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we can put our confidence in. Notice also, thirdly, God's plans or purpose in verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His inheritance. I love the statements in the Word of God that confirm this. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel that can stand against the Lord. The horses prepare for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, we see the same emphasis on the fact that God's purpose cannot be stopped. There we read, speaking of God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Don't you allow for one moment to enter into your thinking that somehow God's ultimate purpose and plans can ever be frustrated. It cannot. There may be an appearance of frustration, but it cannot be stopped altogether. And that includes God's plan for your life as well as mine. You know, sometimes we read about things like this 
and we say, well, that applies to strategies of nations that God oversees or, or overturns or facilitates, depending on what his purpose is. It pl- applies just as much, much to your little to-do list that you take out on Monday morning. That is just a subject to the restraint and the direction of his purpose, as are the things that go on in the Kremlin and the White House. You see, when people oppose God's purpose and plans, they fail. That's what he says in verse 10 here. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. I like what Spurgeon said here in his Treasury of David on the Psalms. He said, Their persecutions and slanders and falsehoods are like puffed balls flung against a granite wall. You cannot ultimately stop the cause of God. Think of the one thing for a moment in human history. That one time, that singular occasion in which it seemed as if God's purpose was really frustrated. In which it seemed as if evil people had gained the upper hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people of the Jews and the Gentiles gathered together in Jerusalem, the text says, to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan predestined to take place. No, Jesus was delivered up, not ultimately by evil men, but by the same God and Father who accomplishes His purpose no matter the opposition. The fourth thing we're told about our great God, His prescience. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. I had uh, lunch a week or so ago with Tony Valentine. He, He sits back there. Uh, They joined the church um, with his wife, joined the church that's kind of around the same time we did. Um, And uh, like I said, we had lunch a week ago, and one of the first things he said was, have you met with anyone about being an elder? I said, some. He said, well, I just have one question. He said, do you like college football? (laughs) Um, 
You don't know that that you didn't know that was a qualification for Eller, did you? But uh, Tony was kidding, of course. But I do like college football, and I like to wa- I like to watch it. But you'll hear commentators and sports writers talk sometimes about the eye in the sky, talking about that camera that that used to be in the press box, but now they suspend it over the field. And it records every event on the field. And they say the eye in the sky never does lie. Well, it does on occasion. You can get away with something, and the camera doesn't see it. God is not like that. Someone said, said it this way, the eye in the sky of God Almighty never misses a thing. He knows all. And think about it. He knows all instantaneously, simultaneously, and wholly. Whether in Warsaw or Wichita, whether in the Rockies or a ravine, whether in a mansion or a hut, his universal prescience. And did you notice the emphasis in these verses on that word all? Verse 13, he sees all. All the children of men? Verse 14, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 15, he who fashions the heart of them all, he observes all their deeds. And the fifth and final thing that we're told about our great God here as the basis for our confidence is passion. Before we read these verses, I want you to think about what the psalmist is saying. Why is there always a crisis in confidence? Very simply because most are tempted to trust in themselves, in their own strength, in their own resources, in their own ingenuity, and ultimately we're being told here that it isn't the army that saves the king. It isn't the strength of man that delivers the warrior. It isn't the war horse that brings salvation and rescue. Confidence placed in such earthly resources will ultimately suffer a crisis. So where is our confidence to be placed in God's steadfast passion, love for us? Look at verse 16 and following. The king is not saved by his great army. 
The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. and By its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Now, it doesn't mean that God dislikes horses. He made them. It doesn't mean that God despises armies. He commissioned them. No, He's telling us here that He despises when we hope in armies and in our own strength and our own ingenuity. Why? Because when you hope in God, God is revealed as the one who is strong and we are weak. That He is the shepherd and we're the sheep. And ultimately, He gets all the glory. Let me close by saying this. If I had one thing, one prayer, for you, for me, for this church, it would be to so expand and enhance our understanding and perception of the supremacy and greatness of God that your life and my life would be one constant song of praise and thanksgiving. And all of the troubles that seem to be so horrible and depressing would be seen in the light of the majesty of God. That's what this psalm is all about. It presents for our adoring gaze the God whom we love and serve and tells us that our confidence and hope are in Him. So when you're tempted to give up and you want to quit and throw in the towel, do you realize you're living and speaking and thinking in the face of Psalm 33 and denying its very truths? You say, but Mark, you don't know how hard I've tried. You don't know how deeply I'm hurt. And you know you're probably right. I don't know how hard you've tried. And I don't know how deeply you're hurt. But the God of Psalm 33 does. That's why Psalm 33 is here. To call us to faith and hope in Him. Father, thank You for these reminders from Your Word and help us to be not only hearers, but doers of Your Word. 
For the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.